Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'll invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In a moment, we'll stand and read. First off, how about one of our middle schoolers playing the drums for us this morning? Great job, Jeremiah. I'm sure we embarrassed the fool out of him right there. Love to see the entire church participating. Uh, as, we, as our children, I'm telling you, that line is going to get all the way down front at some point. Praise God for a church with children. I'll, just a quick announcement, same as last week. This will be the only two weeks that we do this, but children's church is open for fourth and fifth graders as well as our normal first through third graders this morning just because the content of the sermon. You see the warning there on the front of the connector. Uh, as they line up and get ready to go, let me remind you that next Sunday at the end of our morning service, uh, we will be voting on some things together. We'll have a brief members meeting. Uh, if you're a guest with us and not a member, it's, it's only going to take us about 45 seconds. So it's not going to really change the flow of our service. Just at the end of the service, we'll have some ballots as members are coming in uh, to take. We have been considering four bylaw changes together since August, and we will vote on those uh, together, four different motions, and then a fifth motion uh, from the elders nominating Steve DeMick as a lay elder of our congregation. We'll vote on all five of those things on the same ballot at the end of the service next Sunday morning, and then we'll announce the results of that in our third Sunday evening service, uh, which we're on our winter schedule now, so that's going to be at 5 o'clock on Sunday uh, next week, Lord willing. So we will have the members meeting at the end of the service in the morning, and then our third Sunday service at five o'clock on, uh, on the 21st. And one of our young adults, uh, Brandon Ely, is going to be preaching next Sunday. And so we're excited for the first opportunity to hear Brandon uh, to do that. I'll invite you now to stand with me as we consider these verses together this morning, as we move into 1 Corinthians chapter 7 here in our series through uh, this book, we are going to be in the first 16 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, is it good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman? But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of saints here at Nansman River Baptist Church, for the love and fellowship that we share, the bond of peace, the unity of the gospel that is so rich in this gathering. May you continue, God, to bless us as a congregation in the way that we care for, love, admonish, teach, reprove, correct one another. God, as we turn our attention this morning here in 1 Corinthians 7 to 
what your word has to say to us about marriage. We pray, Father, that you will help us, the married, the unmarried alike, in this room today, that we would ensure in our hearts to adopt a biblical view of marriage, that we would honor what you unite together, the bond of marriage, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon is about marriage. So we're entitling it Marriage Matters. I want to begin by reminding you, members of Nansman River Baptist Church, what we in our uh, core beliefs, which are a part of our member covenant, say together. That in part, we believe that God established the family as the foundational institution of human society. Marriage between one man and one woman for life is the cornerstone of God's design for the family. We believe that the Bible is not only clear about what marriage is and what marriage should be, but that the Bible is also clear on how important it is for us to honor marriages together. This is why in the corresponding core value, we state that we will work to honor marriage. By failing to understand and obey what the Bible teaches about marriages, societies and cultures for centuries have eroded from the bottom up because they've allowed that which is supposed to be the cornerstone, marriage between a man and a woman for life to be attacked and eroded away. What's so interesting to me as I have studied these verses this week is that the Bible's teachings about marriage are not complicated. Listen, they're not complicated at all. This is not really a difficult sermon. There are some words that are here and some phrases that are used that are going to need some explaining. But the concepts are very simple. They're simple for us to understand. However, our sin nature complicates marriage. The fact that marriage is a union between two sinners. One of the books that I use in premarital counseling is a book called When Sinners Say I Do. Because the problem is not marriage. The problem is Sinners entering into marriage and that our sin nature complicates the idea of marriage and, and that our worldly understandings of marriage, the way that those outside the church view it, pull us towards or pull us away from the biblical understanding of what, the, what God has clearly said in his word about the union of marriage. The main idea of today's sermon is that a God-honoring view of marriage will be informed by scripture, not the world. This is what I want you to hear today, that we Christians, the church, must have a view of marriage that is informed by scripture if our marriages are to be God-honoring. I included this word God-honoring here in the main idea of the sermon because this is where we left off last week, that we were told to glorify God with our bodies, to, to honor God with everything that we do. Our marriages then should honor God. Our view of marriage should honor God, whether we are married or not. I recognize that there are a wide range of people gathered in here today. Some are married, some are divorced, some are widows or widowers, some are on a second marriage, some are adults who have never been married that desire to do so, some are adults who have never been married that believe, as this text indicates, that they may never become married. This isn't a sermon just for the married people in the room. This isn't a sermon just for the Married people who may be struggling in their marriage in the room. This isn't a sermon just for the young people who may be looking forward to being married one day. This is a sermon for the church. To have a 
scripture-informed view of marriage so that we together will honor God. So let's begin. Three points as we outline this text together. The first, God's design for sex within marriage is a vital component for married believers' spiritual and marital health. God's design for sex, a specific component of marriage, is vital for married believers in both their spiritual and their spiritual health and the health of their marriage. Let's consider a question that Paul introduces this chapter with. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, is it, it, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You say there's no question mark there. I don't even know there's a question. Be- because it's a question. They have, they have written to Paul, the, the Corinthians have, asking for some clarification. Now, we're picking up, if you think about this just logically, the way this worked out, we're picking up in, in, in a conversation midstream. What we know to be true is that not only did Paul found the church in Corinth, but at some point previous to writing what we know as 1 Corinthians, Paul actually wrote another letter. 1 Corinthians is truly 2 Corinthians because he has written another letter to them. And in that letter, we're told in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul has addressed the idea that we considered last week already with this church once, and that is the subject of sexual immorality. And we know that they have written back to him because now he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So we don't know in detail what Paul said in his first letter, although we can certainly surmise the, the, the foundational truths that he would have communicated because they would be no different than what he has said here or in other letters. And, and we have some idea about what they have written back because he quotes them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That, that, that's, this, is, this is really a question. They're asking Paul for a little more understanding here about what does it mean to, to, to flee sexual immorality, to, to not associate with sexual immoral people. And, and there's, there's two possibilities for this group. I introduced last week the idea that there are likely within the church two, at least two factions in, in the way that they are approaching sexual activity, that there are some who are incredibly licentious and that they view sex as just kind of like hunger and they're just gonna give in as whenever they wanna give in and any way that they wanna give in. And if you weren't here last week, it's online. You can go back and listen to it. Paul corrects that group of people. It's easier to refine that first group than it is the second group. We do know there's the second group of people. It's possible that this is a group who have embraced total abstinence from sex, even sex within marriage, even sex for procreation. There was a minority view in Greek philosophy that was being embraced in Paul's day by by a group known as the Stoics, who who just viewed anything of the flesh as bad, including sex within marriage. And so they had become entirely celibate. Uh, While while there are many who think that's what's happening here, I've kind of become convinced in my studies this week that that's the least likely of the possibilities. I think it's probable that this was a group who, 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 was, who, who was engaging in sex within marriage strictly for procreation because they were, they were afraid of breaking the rule that Paul had given them about associating with sexual immoral people and because they had embraced another common view about sex within marriage in first century Roman life particularly amongst wealthy people. And we know that there were wealthy people in the church in Corinth. And there was this view amongst wealthy people in first century Roman life that they could guard the virtue of their wife, even that they were required to guard the virtue of their upstanding, you know, high-class wife by only engaging in sex with her within the, for the purpose of procreation, to have children. And so here's what non-Christian Romans of high standing were doing. They would only sleep with their wives when they wanted to have a child. And they would seek sexual pleasure outside of that. 
And so Paul, we just think about what Paul has told them. Paul has told them in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, don't associate with sexually immoral people. He's told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, that all of the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to define that by saying that means the sexual immoral, adulterers, practice of homosexuality. Then what we considered last week, he has told them to avoid prostitution. So if we follow just kind of the natural flow of Paul's argument and what we can assume about this conversation that they're having, here's what's going on. These people have given in to, I think this is kind of the, the, the probable view here. These people have, have embraced this, this kind of modern, and I say modern, I mean first century modern, modern belief that they were, that they were really to only have sexual relations with their wives for her virtue to have children, and that they would go to temple prostitutes or secular prostitutes or have adulterous affairs with people inside or outside of their household to, to have sexual pleasure. And so they ask in their letter to him, basically in this idiom, when it says there in verse in verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's literally translated as good for a man not to touch a woman, which in, in extra-biblical Greek writing, this idiom is used um, a couple of dozen times and is always describing sex for pleasure. So just follow their train of thought. I'm only supposed to sleep with my wife to have children. You've told me I can't go sleep with anybody else. Do you see the problem? Paul sees the problem. He, he, he sees it. If, if, if we can't, if we're only supposed to have procreational sex within marriage, then where are we supposed to go for sexual pleasure if we can't go to the most common places that people went for that in Roman society? And it was incredibly common for them to go to some of the places that Paul has forbidden them, even in this letter, and likely forbid them in their first. So Paul answers their question. He has an incredibly novel thought. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, two things about verse 2 I want to introduce before we keep reading. I want to point out to you. It's, this is kind of novel. I mean, it really is. He's just saying, well, you don't need prostitutes. You don't need adultery. You don't need homosexuality. You don't need all of these things. Because God's already given you a wife. God's already given you a spouse. Why don't you just have sex with her? Not only for procreation, but also just for pleasure. You, you could just do that, Paul says. But let me show you something that, that Paul begins here that he continues throughout this entire argument that, that, is, that I think is important. He doesn't only address the sexual needs of men in verse 2, but also the sexual needs of women. He says that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. This, this really was a radical, and as he does this, as he goes through these verses, this would have been a radical thing for them to hear because the sexual needs of women were not considered in the first century. That as, we get to, as we're going to get to, to divorce later and, and remarriage, the, the needs for women were not considered as important in the first century. And yet Paul addresses women at every stage along the way as equal in this marriage relationship. Paul understands that both men and women will be, will be tempted towards sexual immorality. And he says so each should have his a man should have his wife and a woman should have her husband and that this will fix the problem. He continues in verse three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and the wife and likewise the wife to her husband. He says, you, you should sleep together. You should have sex regularly together for the wife does not have authority over her own body, he says in verse four, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then I think verse six goes with verse five. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, and I'll explain that in a moment. So what Paul tells them in verses two and three is that the simple solution to sexual immorality is that husbands would sleep with their wives, not only for procreation, but for pleasure, and that wives would sleep with their husbands, not only for procreation, but for pleasure. 
The, the author of Hebrews makes this same tie. In Hebrews chapter 13, we read, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So, so, so the author of Hebrews um, emphasizes the importance of the marriage bed and then says, for God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterer. So, so the same idea is happening. The solution to sexual immorality and adultery is a healthy sex life within marriage. The marriage bed is undefiled, meaning husbands and wives are able to enjoy one another and to enjoy sexual relations with one another. And one of the positive side effects of this is you're able to avoid sexual immorality and adultery. Now, I've said that this is, a, this is, this is novel because it kind of was in Paul's culture, but it's not new to Scripture. This has been God's design all along. We can go back. I don't know, 850 years before the Apostle Paul and see a writing from Proverbs chapter 5. And Proverbs chapter 5 in, entirely devoted to the instruction of a father to, to his son to avoid sexual immorality. And the first 14 verses in Proverbs chapter 5 is about the why, why the son should avoid sexual immorality. And then he gives the solution to avoiding it in verses 15 through 19. Listen to what Solomon, likely the author of Proverbs 5, writes. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your spring be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So what the author of Proverbs and, and, and the apostle Paul are saying, they're in agreement here. That, that the way to avoid sexual immorality is for husbands and wives to have a healthy sex life together. I recognize for some in the room this is already awkward. Let me just make it more so. <laughs> Let me just talk to the young people for a second. You may be sitting here going, this is the last thing I want to hear about right now. It is good and godly if you, being raised in a Christian home, will recognize that likely without you knowing it, your parents regularly get engaged in sexual activity. And it's good that they do. And one day, yes, they did it more than once or twice, depending on how many brothers and sisters you have. And it's good that they do because it contributes to a healthy marriage. And the health, their healthy marriage is the foundation, is the cornerstone of the foundation of your family. So, so the fact that you may not want to hear it, although one day you'll be thankful for it, we, we need to embrace this as a church, recognizing we have young people in, in the church. That, that sex is this thing we ought to be able to, at least in some ways, not crass. Preachers have preached on this. I've listened to some of them. And they make crude jokes and they say crass things and they give just inappropriate challenges to the congregation. Look, that's not what any of this is about. But recognizing that scripture addresses the, the necessity of sex within marriage, the need for it, and, and the benefit of it, we, we ought to all say amen to that. And Paul tells them in verse, verses 5 and 6, don't deprive one another. And he says, except perhaps on, on the agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. So, so don't do this for long. But if, if you need to do it, do it for a little while. Why? Because Satan, if you do, Satan's going to tempt you and you, you have lack of self-control. And then Paul even says, this is why I think verse 6 goes with verse 5. He says, I give this as a concession, not as a command. Meaning there is no command in Scripture for husbands and wives to ever introduce celibacy within their marriage. Now, he's, he gives it as a concession. Maybe they need to for a period of time. And there are certainly health reasons that people would need to do that. There may be spiritual reasons that, families, or that, that husbands and wives would choose to do that. But we should only do it for, for, the, for the time that is necessary. Don't deprive one another. And if you do it for spiritual reasons, 
Paul says, then, then don't do it for long. And that, again, a concession. You say, we, we, we've talked a lot about sex. I recognize that not only makes the, some of the young people in the room uncomfortable, there may be some, some older folks in the room that are like, is this, are we really going to keep talking about this subject? Are, are we so free now in our modern sexual revolution influence society that we're going to spend all of last week and a portion of this week's sermon openly and freely talking about sex. Well, can I just say, it's not a new idea for the church to talk about this. The people that get the most, like the worst rap about sex is the Puritans. People even will will use that as a derogatory term. They'll they'll call someone puritanical when it comes to, you know, things about sex, as if the Puritans had some kind of warped view of it. They actually didn't. The Puritans had a biblical view of sex. Now, they rejected things like homosexuality. They were, they were very strict about divorce and remarriage, as Scripture is. But I want you to hear one Puritan writer, a guy named William Gouge, who was an early 17th century English Puritan. And he wrote about the subject of sex, and he said that the physical union within marriage is one of the most proper and essential acts of marriage. He goes on to say that married couples should engage in sex with goodwill and delight, willingly, readily, and cheerfully. And that's a 17th century Puritan telling his married congregants, enjoy sex within the confines of marriage. Paul also makes a theological argument in verse 4. He says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, again, this is a radical train of thought for first century Romans because it would have been well received that the wife does not have control over her body, but the husband does because women, by and large, were viewed in, in, in a similar way as property. But, but Paul both speaks of men and women, that wives have authority over their husbands' bodies and that husbands have authorities over their, their wives' bodies. The Bible is radical when it comes to equality between men and women within marriage, not saying that they don't have different roles. They certainly do. And we're going to see a passage in a minute that, that delineates those roles. But wives, your husband's body belongs to you. And Husbands, your wife's body belongs to you equally because you are one flesh. You have been unified together. You belong to one another. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul in that letter makes this same argument. He says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one hates his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You know, I I read several different things. I'm only gonna quote one Puritan, but I read several things that the Puritans wrote about, about sex within marriage. And in nearly every case, they would trace their argument all the way back to the same place Paul does, Genesis that the two become one flesh, that in the beginning, God designed marriage to be this one flesh union between one man and one woman for life, and that the man looks at his wife as his own body, and that the woman, the, the wife, looks at her husband as if his body is her own, that they are one together. So with that view, we need to understand that Sexual relations between men and women is more than procreation. It is intended for our sanctification. It is intended for our good and that we are allowed. The marriage bed is undefiled. We are allowed to enjoy our spouse in that way. Number two, while the Lord will gift some for singleness, marriage is a good and normal pursuit for believers. While the Lord will give some for singleness, marriage is a good and normal pursuit for believers. He says in verses 7 through 9, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion 
So verse 7 tells us that Paul is currently single. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over whether Paul was always single or whether Paul was at some point became a widower in his life. We don't know. His wife is never discussed in the scriptures. However, it would have been incredibly abnormal, even unheard of, for someone to come up in the way that Paul did as a Pharisee and to not be married. But he never speaks of if he had a wife, his wife. But we know by what he says here that at the writing of this letter, he himself is single and celibate. And he says, I wish that everyone was like I am. Now that wish is not a command. It, it, it's, it's, it's just intended for, Paul's looking at himself and, and seeing that he is incredibly useful for the kingdom of God. Clearly as an apostle, he is. Other apostles, by the way, were married. But he sees his usefulness, he sees his ability to, to be able to do the things that, he, he is, that God has called him to do for the church and how being single contributes to that. But he recognizes, he says, each, have, each has his own gift from God, that, that this is a gift from God and that not everyone is going to have it. And I think if we look at his argument, we're going to see not only is not everyone going to have it, but most people are not going to have it. Because most people would not be able to exercise the kind of self-control that Paul exercised. And so it is better for them to marry than to burn. And he addresses both unmarried people and widows and widowers, those who became unmarried because of the death of a spouse. Now, I'm going to have an entire sermon. I'm going to devote an entire sermon in two weeks to the subject of singleness. And here's what I recognize. There are some singles in this room, adult singles in this room, that we talk, we'll talk a lot about marriage. And there'll be times you, you feel like we're, we're leaving you out a little bit. I'm going to have an entire sermon just on the subject of singleness. Because we think singleness is important. We think Paul addresses here in, in 1 Corinthians 7 the subject of singleness. And we want to encourage singles in their commitment of Christ. And Paul says, he gives, gives a window into what he's going to say later about singleness. And that is there are some useful things that single people can do for the kingdom of God that married people, because of their commitments to their family and very likely the, the result of a family, children, the result of marriage is most often children, that, that they are unable to do at the same level that Paul or maybe other single people would be able to do. But we have to take in consideration, at least for this sermon, this text, the fact that many, most, will find themselves married. And that we should see this as a good thing. And Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at two different things in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to do it in a reverse order. Jesus teaches, the, he responds to the Pharisees, the disciples hear it, and they ask a question in verse 10. We're going to look at what he says to the Pharisees in just a moment. He says in verse 10, the disciples say, based off of what Jesus has just instructed, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? So they kind of ask this question. They're like, man, if I got to apply that, is it just better for me to be single? And Jesus says to them, not every can receive this saying, but only those for whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Here's what Jesus recognizes in Matthew chapter 19, and I think it's the same thing Paul recognizes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is that most people will not remain single, and most people shouldn't. Some should. Some will be able to. Some will be gifted by God to do so, and we'll see that further later in 1 Corinthians 7. But most of us will not. Most Christians should pursue marriage. Now, listen, marriage doesn't make one more sanctified or more Christian it's not that the married people in this room are somehow better than the single people in this room. That's not, what the, that's not the testimony of Scripture at all. But marriage does allow for both procreation and the satisfaction of sexual desires. It is a good pursuit. So my advice to the young people in this room is this. It's very likely that you will need to be married. And it is a good pursuit for you to desire to be married. And that's not what young people in our world are currently hearing. People are getting married later and later in life. More people in our culture today than at any point in history 
say that they have no desire whatsoever to be married. They also say, more people are now saying than ever before, that they have no desire to have children. This is an incredible problem within our culture. By the way, it is a clear result of what I started the sermon with, the erosion of marriage between one man and one woman as the foundation of human society. When that erodes away, you have people that say, I can get sexual pleasure anywhere. And I can be free to travel and to work and to do all of these things that I want to do. Nothing that has anything to do with the kingdom of God. So young people, it's likely that you are going to need to be married. It's not a guarantee that the Lord is going to provide a husband or a wife for you. But if he does, it is a good pursuit. Number three, married believers should seek to stay married with few exceptions. Now, I included that last phrase, with few exceptions, because Paul provides one of them and then points us to where Jesus provides another one. This, this point was very, uh, it was almost entitled, married believers should seek to stay married, because that should be the, the common disposition within the church. Our desire should be 100% to stay in the marriage that we are in, that we would be committed to life to the marriage that we are in. But the Bible does provide for us what I think should be extremely rare exceptions, particularly within the church. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, in verse 10, Paul says, not I, but the Lord. And in verse 12, he's going to say, I, not the Lord. And I think it's important for me to address this now so we can understand what these two phrases mean. In, verses, in verse 10, he's saying that what he is going to say next is actually a repeat teaching of Jesus. And Jesus, on multiple occasions in his earthly ministry, addressed marriage and divorce. And so Paul is building a foundation upon that which Jesus said. And so he is summarizing, not directly quoting, but he's summarizing Jesus and reminding the church of what they already knew that Jesus had said about the subject of marriage. But then in verse 12, he's going to introduce a new idea. He's going to, he's going to provide a, a second exception. And, and really what he's doing, he's bringing to bear the teachings of Jesus in the Gentile culture that he is writing this letter. So the teachings of Scripture are clear, that Christians should enter into marriage as lifelong commitments. We should not consider divorce as an option. However, Christ and Paul provide exceptions, which should be exceedingly rare within the church if we are marrying committed Christians. But let's see what those two exceptions are. The first is the exception to, to, to divorce that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 19. And the Pharisees come to Jesus and, and they have this very liberalized view of divorce. Basically, in, in, in Hebrew culture, in Jesus' day, a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. Some of the writing from that day is just astounding. I mean, even if, he, if she burns his dinner, it was a reason that he could give for divorcing her. Some of you are like, I'd have been divorced a long time ago, <laughs> right? I mean, it was that simple. Jewish men could divorce their wives for nearly any reason in Jesus' day. And the Pharisees come to him and they say, and, and it was, by the way, exceedingly popular amongst men. Men liked that loophole. All right, so that's why the Pharisees are going to trap, try to trap Jesus in Matthew 19. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? To think, people in our culture say Jesus never addressed things like sexuality or, or the, the church's traditional view of marriage. That's hogwash. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, God created some people men and some people women, and they're going to marry each other. That's what Jesus said. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of your heart, because of your sin, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. 
So let's take the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus are clear for us. We should be committed to the one flesh union of marriage for life, but that there is an exception, and Jesus makes this in just in the Gospel of Matthew in two different places. He does also in the Sermon on the Mount that there is an exception for sexual immorality. Now, we are not commanded to seek divorce. Christians, hear me. We are not commanded to seek divorce just because our spouse was unfaithful. And I don't think that it is always right or necessary for us to seek divorce in those cases, but it is permissible. And so my encouragement to you would be, if you find yourself in that marriage, you need to seek godly wisdom and counsel from pastors, other godly people in your life who can help you answer the question, am I going to be able to move forward in this relationship? Praise God that we have seen people commit heinous sins against their spouse, like committing adultery, and yet because of the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of that marriage, they've been able to forgive and to move forward in a godly way. But the exception is there, and we should recognize that it is there. And then Paul gives a second one. So what Paul does is he builds off of what Jesus was teaching in a Jewish context. He builds off of that into a Gentile context. He says in verse 12, to the rest I say, I not the Lord. This is still scripture. He's just saying this isn't something that Jesus said. I'm now building on it. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever he, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. For if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother and sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For you do not know, uh, for how do you not know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you not know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Just notice again the equality here that he speaks to both men and women equally. Now, in Roman culture, men and women were not seen as equal in marriage and did not have equal access to divorce. And yet Paul writes to them as if they did recognizing something that would be radical in that day, that marriage is a commitment not only for a man to have his wife, but also for a wife to have her husband. And so the second exception that is given in Scripture is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. He says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they don't want to be married to you anymore, you're free to let them leave, whether it's a wife letting her husband leave or a husband letting his wife leave. But if they do want to remain in the marriage, you should remain also. That you should stay, he says. You, you should stay in the, in the marriage. So th- this, is, this is the exception. And, and we, you see this. It, it happens within the church. But again, it should be an exceedingly rare because what should happen in Christian communities, is that Christians should marry Christians. However, there are times that, as it would have been in that case, there would have been pagan marriages, people who are non-Christian and non-Christian who are married, and one of them is converted and the other one isn't. And what Paul says is, you're you're proclaiming the gospel to your spouse by staying with them. That, That you're proclaiming the gospel to your children. This is what he means when he says, that your children will be holy. He's not saying the marriage makes your children holy, but, but that you have gospel witness within your family to your children. You have gospel witness to your unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife. Peter makes the same argument in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if, they, if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So there are those gathered with us today who have unbelieving husbands or unbelieving wives. Here's my my encouragement to you based on the instruction of Scripture. If your husband or wife will stay with you, stay in that marriage because by staying, you are proclaiming the gospel to them. And we have seen, there are testimonies in this room of men and women who were not believers, who became believers because of the faithful testimonies of their believing spouse over the course of years. Now, before we move into our point of application, let me just clarify something quickly for you. This is, this is my understanding of abandonment. 
but it's an important subject for today because there may be someone sitting in here, there may be somebody that watches this later online that brings up an important discussion that's, that's happening within our culture. This is the discussion of abuse. We, we've talked about adultery, we've talked about abandonment. What about things like physical abuse? Would, would, we, would we counsel a wife to stay in an abusive marriage? I would not. I actually place abuse in the abandonment category. And I'm not alone in this. The, the, this is how many modern Christians are thinking about abuse and abandonment. That, that the teaching of the New Testament is really clear if we understand what Jesus and Paul, what, what the scriptures are saying to us. That Christians should be committed to the one flesh union for life. But the divorce is permitted, and, and this is a direct quote from someone I read this week. When one partner clearly manifests a radical refusal to respect their marital commitment and maintain the fundamental integrity of the marriage. And I would say that something like physical abuse, ongoing physical abuse, is a refusal to maintain the fundamental integrity of the marriage. I would say this, that a Christian even if someone is professing the name of Christ, will not regularly abuse their spouse in that way. And so if that's happening in this room, we need, we need you to come to one of our pastors and, and tell us, because we will place your spouse under church discipline. We will begin to move them towards one of two things, either repentance or removal from the congregation. Because Christians do not act that way. So what? We proclaim the gospel and encourage sanctification as we honor marriage as ordained by God. Where we read in Hebrews chapter 13 that the marriage bed is undefiled, we also read that we let marriage be held in honor among all. We are instructed to do what we say we will do in our core values, that we will honor marriages. We must hold marriage in high esteem. You need to hold your own marriage in high esteem. You need to hold the marriages of others in high esteem. Whether you are in one, seeking one, or maybe God has gifted you in this life for singleness, the call for all of us is the same. Honor marriage, and not only our own, but all of the marriage present in our church. We hold them in high esteem. We should never seek to attack them or tear them down. We should want all of the marriages. This is a regular prayer of mine. God, would you protect and guard the marriages in this church? God, would you keep us committed to husbands to their wives and wives to their husbands? Would you guard us from adultery and sexual immorality? God, would you protect us from abandonment and abuse? God, God would you guard the marriages of our church? Because marriage is important. It is, it is fundamental to who we are as a community, and through those marriages, through the way that we love and treat our spouse, through the way that, that we interact with them, through the way that we honor marriage, we, we are proclaiming the gospel to people. Not only within marriages where a spouse is married, a believing spouse is married to an unbelieving spouse, but your marriage and the way that you operate within your marriage proclaims the gospel to your neighbors who don't understand marriage in the same way that we do. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and listen to what Paul says in some of those verses there. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Then he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, Paul says our marriages are are pictures of the gospel. Our marriages are pictures of how Christ loved the church. Our, our marriages are pictures of how Christ gave himself for his bride. And so we, husbands and wives, give ourselves for our husbands and we give ourselves for our wives. We don't look at our bodies as our own, but we look at our bodies as belonging to the other. We love each other. We sacrifice for each other. We're committed to lifelong commitments. We don't walk away when it gets hard. We stay 
proclaiming the gospel to anyone who sees by example the love of Christ in our marriages. I am so grateful. I want to end with this. I am so grateful for the faithful saints that sit in this room who have been married for 30 and 40 and 50 years. Over my time as pastor here, I have preached at this point, I don't know, I could look it up because I have them all recorded, but I've preached countless funerals. And so many of them have had a godly widow or widower sitting right, right here. And as I've read their, their, their spouse's obituary, which always begin funerals, reading the obituary, just so we're recognizing the family and the person's life. It almost always says something like they've been married to the loving spouse and it's something like 45, 50, 55, 60 years. And I always say something, if you've attended my funerals, I always say something that's not in the obituary. When I say how long they've been married, I always make this phrase, to the glory of God. Why? Because by being committed to another sinner for that long, <laughs> we show the glory of God through his good gospel to us. So elderly saints in the Lord who've been committed to your marriage for all that long or who may very well be missing your wife or missing your husband today as we talk about marriage, know this. You were an incredible example to those of us who follow you. You have preached the gospel to us because of your commitment. It has not always been easy. <laughs> Amen. It has not always been easy. But you have faithfully preached the gospel to those of us who've been married 22 years or two years or a few months that are represented in this room. Thank you for so faithfully preaching the gospel to us and showing us how to honor marriage in our church. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you. First, for the goodness of the gospel that we find in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and how it is exemplified to us in the one flesh union of marriage that Christ redeems his church, his bride, unifies with her, and that husbands and wives are called to unify with their spouse, to become one flesh together to enjoy one another, to walk beside one another, to preach the gospel to one another and to preach the gospel to the world, to honor God. Not by living in marriage according to the way the world says that we are to live it, but by living in marriage is the way scripture does. Help us all, every married man and woman in this room to be committed for life to their spouse. And use those relationships, God, we pray, to preach the gospel in this room and outside of it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Church, let's stand together as we sing.